We are continuing working our way through the Psalms tonight. Uh, We are with Asaph and with the Psalms again in Psalm 82. So turn to Psalm 82. As I've just alluded to, it is a Psalm of Asaph, and it reads as follows. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Father, we pray that you would take your stand tonight by the Holy Spirit and speak to us from this, your word. I pray that. I would be able to speak tonight, as Paul says, not merely with words, but with the Holy Spirit and power as well. So come by your word and by your spirit and speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God takes his stand in his own congregation, verse 1 tells us. Now, I'm well aware that other Bible translations render Psalm 82 1 differently than that. And I'm also aware that translating verse 1 differently could lead to an entirely different kind of interpretation of this entire psalm. In other words, some commentators um, believe, based on other translations, that Psalm 82 is an indictment against world governments, against kings and politicians for their injustice and ignorance of God's statutes and there is surely sentence to be handed down in those realms of world and national political powers but based on what i've read about this psalm and about verse one in particular it seems to me that the new american standard bible has it right here in verse one the emphasis of this psalm is not on god's indignation with the civil magistrates and with the governments of the world, but with the rulers among his own people. God takes his stand in his own congregation. God takes his stand, in other words, among his own people. And within the ranks of his own people, he takes his stand, verse 1b, in the midst of the rulers. He judges in the midst of the rulers. This psalm, I believe, is an indictment against Israel herself, against the very people of God and their rulers. And it's a reminder to us tonight that if God could speak to them that way, if God could have aught with his people of old, then he may also have some bones of contention with his people today in the church. God takes his stand in his own congregation in the Old Testament, and he surely does that from time to time in our own day as well. I wonder if you ever think about that, God taking his stand to judge his own people. The mess outside the church 
so often seems to be so great and so far gone and so much in need of God's judgments that we might find ourselves thinking, well, surely they need to hear from God much more than we do. Surely the pagan world has it coming much more than the church. Surely God takes his stand in Washington, D.C., or in London, or in Los Angeles, or in New York City, or in some of those places, not mainly in his own congregation, because they're the ones who are so far afield. And in some ways, that's surely true. The world is, in most cases, much worse off than the church is. But let us remember something very important about the church. We know better, right? The world may not know better, but we know better. We have the word of God, and we have the spirit of God, and we have the life of God in our souls. And so while the world's sins may usually be greater than our sins, because we know better, our sins are much less excusable. And because they're much less excusable, God sometimes takes his stand in his own congregation to judge and to discipline his own people. You can think about this in terms of your own children. Perhaps there have been times, if your kids are small or when they were small, when they had their friends over from the neighborhood. And those neighborhood kids were in your home and they were behaving very rottenly. You can picture that, can't you? And you spoke to those children and you were very disappointed in their actions. But what bothered you even more and what drew even more of your indignation was the way your own children were behaving, right? They might not have even been behaving as badly as the neighborhood kids, but because they're your own kids, you expect more. You expect your own children to know better. And so their misbehaving, misbehaving strikes you at a much deeper level. And so it is, I would suggest to you, with our Heavenly Father. All sin committed by any person in the world is a stench in his nostrils. All sin makes God indignant, whether committed by a believer or an unbeliever. But when God's own people continue unrepentantly in sin, it's even worse in some ways because we know better. We're no longer blind like we once were or like our neighbors still are. We've been bought with the blood of Christ We've been taught by the Holy Spirit, and so we ought to know better. And yet it's often true, as with Israel, that the church of Jesus Christ is not what she should be. And I'm not even referring to the phony religious organizations that masquerade as the church of Jesus Christ, but which really aren't. I'm, I mean the real Christians, the Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, true church of Jesus Christ. We're not always what we ought to be, are we? Praise God, we're not what we once were. And if we're real Christians, we're not what the world around us is. But we're not always what we should be either, are we? Even real Christians can be wretchedly sinful and can have major blind spots, as history has shown. And so we well understand why, as with Israel of old here in Psalm 82 and in other places as well, God sometimes rises and takes his stand in his own congregation and judges and disciplines his own people's lawless deeds. And this judgment, this discipline, we're told, is especially reserved for the rulers among God's people. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. It's the same sort of thing that James says, isn't it? In James chapter 3, verse 1. 
the rulers, the teachers among God's people, will incur stricter judgment. So God's people are held to a higher standard than the world, and the rulers among God's people are held to an even higher standard than the rest. And so before we go on and discuss exactly why God was taking his stand, why he was indignant, why he was angry with his people, I just want verse 1 to sink deeply into our consciences tonight. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He stands, as we find Jesus doing in the book of Revelation, walking among the churches and saying sometimes, I have this against you. Now, when he says that, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love the church anymore. It doesn't mean that he won't still forgive our sins. It doesn't mean that they're not still covered in the blood of Jesus. No, the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the adoption of God are all sealed to us forever by the blood of Jesus, aren't they? That won't change. And yet, though God will never leave us or forsake us, he will discipline us if we stop listening and stop obeying. He will take his stand in his own congregation, and he will judge in the midst of her rulers. He expects more of us, and he has every right to, and therefore it's sometimes true, as Peter says, that judgment will begin with the household of God. That's the first thing to notice tonight. God takes his stand in his own congregation, but then the question is, why? Why did he do that? What was his contention with Israel of old and with her leaders in the days when Psalm 82 was written? And the answer there in verses 2 through 5 is really twofold. God took his stand in his own congregation and particularly among her rulers because of injustice, verses 2 through 4, and ignorance, verse 5. Injustice and ignorance. Let's think about both of those for a few minutes each. First, just listen to God's indignation beginning in verse 2 towards his people's injustice. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. The problem that God had with his people is obvious there, isn't it? They were showing partiality to the wicked, perhaps to the prosperous wicked who could line the pockets of the rulers. And meantime, those people who really needed the help of the rulers, who really needed their special interest, were left out in the cold. Namely, the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, and the needy. Let me just read that list again so that you can think it out in terms of the church in America today and our own church and leaders, and in terms of your own priorities. Where do these folks fit in our priorities? The weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, and the needy. What would God say to us about our concern for these types of folks? What would he say to you? Now let me be honest and tell you One of the first thoughts that comes to my mind when I start thinking about social needs out in the world around us is something like this. We live in a culture where very many people receive handouts and help who don't really need or deserve such freebies. And I think that's true. It can be maddening to stand in line 
at the UDF and see someone texting on a fancy smartphone and then buying Twinkies and donuts with taxpayer dollars. Um, that's my, my rant for the night. And yet, the fact that that comes to my mind first shows that I better be careful with this song. We can become so frustrated with the American system and the abuses that are there that we just close our ears altogether to people who really do need help. And that would be a grave travesty. Let's not do that tonight. Let's not read this psalm and immediately think of all the things that are wrong with the system, but let's just hear what it says. Think about these folks with me, the folks who are marginalized in the psalmist's day and and in ours as well. First, the weak and the afflicted. Those people for whom either mental or physical difficulties means they really just need help. They need someone to advocate for them. They need someone to wheel them around in their wheelchairs. They need someone to come and help them clean up or to find a place to live and so on. Do we, the church of Jesus Christ, really care for these people? Notice these people. Try in what ways we can to meet their needs. And then there are the destitute and the needy. Those who have just come on hard times. Maybe they've been laid off. Maybe their house is burned down. Maybe they're working 40 or 50 or 60 hours and just don't have the skills to earn enough money to make ends meet. Again, we look out and we should ask ourselves, how do I respond to such people? Do I just sort of lump them in the category of the people that are using the system? Or do I really take time to look and see who really does need help? Do we listen to their stories and find ways to show compassion and meet needs? And what about the fatherless that are spoken of here and who are so often at the top of God's list of folks to whom we ought to show compassion? compassion. Christians ought to be, and very often Christians are, at the forefront of caring for orphans and of adopting orphans and defending the fatherless unborn. This is perhaps one of the great strengths in our era of the church of Jesus Christ in this country is that people in the church really do seem to care about the fatherless. But let me just remind you there's a lot more work to do. Before we pat ourselves on the back for something we're doing well, which we, I think, are in our generation, we can't rest on our laurels. There's so many more children, fatherless children, who need care, both in our country and beyond. So these verses here are all about justice ministries, all about helping folks who cannot, for one reason or another, meet their own needs. And we we need to address the fact that we are in a slightly different situation in terms of mercy and, and social ministries than was ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, the religious and governmental aspects of mercy and social services were in many ways wrapped into one because the people of God were not only a religious gathering of people, but a nation, right? And so the biblical principles and laws that we're reading about here tonight were to be enforced not only in people's individual lives or in local synagogues or gatherings of of believers, but they were to be enforced in the government as well because God was king of the nation. So alongside generosity and concern among individuals, these things were to be enforced without question among the kings and the leaders and the judges of the people. 
That's not exactly the situation in which we currently live. Yes, there are biblical policies and principles of mercy and social justice and service that ought to be enforced in any civilized nation right down to this day. And we should praise God, incidentally, that we live in a country that for a long time has prioritized these kinds of things and not left people on the curb, at least not as badly as in some places. But the government and the church in our day are no longer one entity, right? It's not quite the same as the Old Testament. And so we have to think out some different applications to this. Because our government may or may not actually take Psalm 82 and run with it. But we have to take it and run with it, whether the government around us does or not. So how do we apply these laws of social justice from the Old Testament in our own day? That can be a real challenge in a society where church and state are separated and are often so very different from one another in their thinking and priorities. It's a challenge because on the one hand, we can begin to just assume that the marginalized and the perplexed and the homeless and the needy are the government's province. And we just assume that if we pay our taxes, we've done our duty. Or on the other hand, we can see how the social services are abused and how the government often enables people to continue in bad habits. And we can allow those things to harden our hearts to those people who really need help, as I said before. But neither of those is the appropriate response among God's own congregation. We, whatever happens in the government realm, we are to be the most compassionate of all the people on the planet remembering how compassionate God has been with us in Christ. He's given us a salvation, a status, a family that we did not earn and that we could never in a million years pay back. And so we ought, on the one hand, yes, to urge and enable our government in ways that are appropriate to take up social services among the weak and the afflicted and the fatherless and the destitute and the needy. But we ought also, perhaps even more so, as the people of God, as churches and individuals, to do what we can to lead the way, both as we care for needy individuals around us and as we support larger ministries that do so on a larger scale, like Pregnancy Care of Cincinnati or the City Gospel Mission, Samaritan's Purse, Compassion International, Voice of the Martyrs, you could name others as well. Christians ought to be at the very front of these issues. And to the extent that we blow these kinds of things off in favor of our own materialism or acquisitiveness, or to the extent that we allow the abuses around us to, to give us an excuse to close our ears, we should expect God to take his stand in his own congregation and judge in the midst of the rulers. So just think it out. Who do I know as an individual who needs my help? Do I know anyone who is weak or afflicted or fatherless or destitute or needy? Or maybe it's just someone who's lonely or someone who's sick. Who do I know who could use a helping hand or a word of encouragement or a financial boost or a place to stay? Are there any mercy ministries on a larger scale that I ought to be supporting with my dollars and with my prayers? And are there ways that we as a church can be more compassionate to those around us? That's the first sin that God addresses among his people, injustice. But then the second in verse 5 is ignorance. 
ignorance. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. The people of Israel and their leaders in particular are indicted here because they were ignorant of the ways and words and laws of God. Now, it could be that they were so far gone that they were completely oblivious to the obligations that God has just listed for them regarding the weak and the afflicted and the fatherless. That could be what he has in mind. Not only are you not vindicating the fatherless and the weak and helping the afflicted, but you don't even realize you're supposed to be doing that. You're so far into the darkness that you don't even understand basic biblical principles. That could be what he's saying, or it could be that he's just saying, you're oblivious to my truth in general. Things that you ought to know, things that you ought leaders to be teaching among the people are completely left out. Things like the attributes of God, perhaps, or the way of sacrifice and salvation, the laws of God and his morals for his kingdom, maybe the history of his dealings with his people. They were ignorant. They were walking in darkness. They did not know, nor did they understand. And I don't think this ignorance was confined to just the days in which this particular psalmist was living. This was a problem throughout much of Israel's history, the people being destroyed for lack of knowledge. You remember, perhaps, that one of the functions of the priests in the Old Testament was that they were to be out in the villages teaching people the Bible. But one doesn't very often get the sense that that happened the way it was supposed to. There was even a time in the Old Testament in the later years of the kingdom when the king himself had never read and it appears never even seen a copy of God's law. And when a copy was found and put into his hands, he was completely shocked by the contents. It's just as the psalmist put it here in verse 5. They do not know nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. It's the same sort of thing that we read about in pre-Reformation Europe in the Roman Catholic Church. They did not know. They did not understand. They were walking about in darkness. Not only was the Bible kept locked up in the Latin tongue, which the common folks couldn't read or understand, but many of the priests, it would seem, were fairly ignorant of the Bible's contents as well. It just didn't seem all that important to the leaders of the day. They had their own books and their own codexes and their own agendas, and so the Bible was ignored and kept from the masses and contradicted in many, many destructive ways. So we read this and we think, boy, history repeats itself. And it does. And what happens when a people and their leaders walk about in darkness? What happens when they do not know nor do they understand? What happens when people are ignorant of the ways and words of God? Well, verse 5 tells us, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Things start to come apart at the seams when people don't know this book. God's people start to believe anything and everything when they don't know this book. And eventually, anything goes. And Israel and or the church ends up looking nothing like what the Bible describes. Now, I submit to you that history does repeat itself. And I submit to you that in many ways, I think in our modern evangelicalism, we're in the throes of just such a slide into ignorance. For many decades now, pastors have 
focused on and been taught to focus on and expected to focus on in many cases marketing techniques instead of on the word of God. There used to be a time when the local pastor was one of the most scholarly, most learned, most wise people in the community. His job was to study a book and then to teach it to people and to bring it to people in their hurt and in their need. People turned to him and the church called him to be more than anything else a knower and a teacher of this book. But somewhere along the line, the paradigm shifted in many circles. The pastor became sort of a public persona. He became an entrepreneur, leading the church to great things. He became a dreamer. He became the chief marketing agent for the church or the spokesperson or what have you. And none of those things, if they are... The gifts of God necessarily are wrong if you're entrepreneurial or, or creative. But there is a problem when for the pastor or the church or the seminary or the Christian culture at large, those things become the expectation for what a successful pastor actually is. He's a charismatic, entrepreneurial face of the church who leads out in, in dynamic growth. All of those things can be good, but that's not what a pastor is at root level. A pastor at root level is to be a man of the book, a man who doesn't walk in darkness, a man who can lead the people to knowledge, a man who can teach and minister this book. And when that sort of biblical knowledge and ability and wisdom is no longer the chief or the ultimate, the bottom line expectation of what a pastor, a leader, an elder should be, then all the foundations are shaken. Same thing happened in worship services then. Preaching became shorter and other things longer. Sermons became topical discussions that were heavy on illustration and story and light on actual explanation of what the Bible really means and says. And so while very many churches in American evangelicalism as a whole would still say today, oh, you know, we're people of the Bible. We're not like those Roman Catholics. We believe in sola scriptura. The fact of the matter is that the evangelical church in America is at many points at a Psalm 82.5 crossroads. They don't know nor do they understand. How else do you explain the popularity of men like Joel Osteen or Rob Bell or T.D. Jakes who all are so far afield when it comes to the truth of this book and yet so popular? How do you explain the popularity of a book like The Shack other than the American church as a whole does not know nor do they understand? And much of that as we're told in verse 1, is because of the rulers. And as a result of these things, the foundations of the earth are shaken. Our American church and our nation around her are crumbling into a shell of our former selves. And we have to ask ourselves here and as individuals, what part are we playing in that demise? How well do we know our Bibles? How much are we just like the culture around us because we fail to take seriously to know and believe and do the things found written in this book? Are we walking about in darkness and don't even know it? God takes his stand in his own congregation. He rebukes us for injustice and for ignorance. And I say again, his rebuke is especially directed at the rulers, verse 1, or as he calls them in verse 6, the gods. 
small g. Now, even though the g is small, that's a strange thing for God to call human beings, isn't it? I thought there was only one true God. And now God is calling the Jewish leaders in the Old Testament gods? He is, verse 6. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. What does he mean calling these leaders gods? Well, it's possible that God is being sarcastic here. It's possible that he's mocking these men who seem to think of themselves as little gods. So powerful were they. It's possible that he's saying, you think that you're like the gods, verse 6, but I'll show you, verse 7, who the real God is. It's also possible that the word gods here is simply God's way of reminding these men that they were standing in God's place before his people, that they were actually representatives of God to his people, that they were his image bearers, his mouthpieces, his mediators in front of his people. And so they were, for his people, almost like little versions of God in their leadership roles. I'm not sure which interpretation is right, but in either case, the point is that the leaders of God's people were held in high honor. They were in some ways especially privileged. They were highly honored. They had great influence. They were almost godlike. But, verse 7, that wouldn't keep them from God's judgment. That didn't make them above God's law. I said you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Now, that's a strong word for those leaders. And by extension, it's a strong word for those of us who are leaders in this church. And those of us who have aspirations someday of being leaders or being in pastoral ministry. This is a strong reminder. James brings this home, as I said already, in his epistle and adds even more force and weight to it, I think. Chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. We will incur a stricter judgment. Now, James is certainly not trying to empty the church of all of her pastors and teachers by saying that. He's just trying to make those of us who are or who aspire to that office sober. Those of us who undertake to lead God's people must be prepared to do it well, to give it our all, to lead according to knowledge, to be men of justice, to know this book. For though we may sometimes almost look like gods and though we may stand as representatives of God among his people, nevertheless, his discipline will come down on us hardest of all if we are heartless and neglectful or ignorant. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Verse 6, I said you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men. And I just ask that the rest of you who are not leaders would pray for those of us who are, that these things would never need to be spoken to or of us. And then just finally, notice that the psalm closes with a prayer and a helpful reminder. Verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. In other words, God not only possesses Israel, and he not only possesses the church, but he possesses all the nations. He can arise anytime he chooses and make 
us in the church or make us in this nation or make some other nation in the world what we ought to be. Anytime he wants, he can arise. So let us who belong to his own congregation beseech him to do just that.